0: there was a, an apocryphal uh, manuscript <clears throat> known as the Acts of Peter. And in that manuscript, um, so it's, it's not the Bible, but in this manuscript, um, it was told that Peter, whenever he died, was crucified upside down. Um, David Helm writes that by the close of the 2nd century, Tertullian held the same view and there are others around that time that believed that was the case, that Peter, um, as Jesus said, that he, he would, told him what manner in which he would die. Um, this tradition began um, that Peter was crucified, but he refused to be crucified right side up, requested to be crucified upside down. He said if this is true, then we can say that Peter's long hope for exaltation, His entrance into the eternal glory came after one brief and final season of human humiliation. In the end, for Peter, heaven's inheritance was gained only after being crucified, head down towards the earth. Ironically, according to the Christian faith, the way up always comes by going down. It's this inversion, attaining glory and honor, that has Peter's theme throughout. Has been Peter's theme throughout. The Christian's future inheritance and our exaltation, our eternal share in the glory of Christ, will be awarded to us on the day of his appearing. But that promised day comes only after a brief season of present day sufferings. Suffering always precedes subsequent glories. It was so for God's Son, it will be so for us as well. Not really. It's the theme of this whole book that we've been studying together. That Peter tells us who we are in Christ, the hope of glory that we have in the ages to come, but then tells us, but now, now is suffering, now is hardships, now is trials. But then will be glory, then will be exaltation, There, then will be peace and, and joy. So Peter this whole epistle has encouraged us, has exhorted us, has uh, challenged us to live for the glory of Christ, to put off temptation, to endure suffering, to endure hardships with the by living by faith in the son of God, knowing who he has made us in Christ and looking toward that blessed hope of his appearing and with his uh, Appearing in our reward and our inheritance. The conclusion of the letter is no different. He sums up this theme that has been running; these two themes, rather, that has been running through the whole book. The 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 now, but not yet kind of a thought, um, and, and bringing it to a to a close here at the end. And so he gives us, and this would be the title of the message that. He gives us edicts and encouragements and expectations. So in the, there's two sections here. Besides the conclusion, there's two sections. First, there's one on submission and humility. And then there's one on resisting and being steadfast because of the devil um, is seeking whom he may devour. And in both of those sections, he begins with an edict or a command to obey. He says... Here's here something I want you to do. Here's something that you must do as, a, as God's children. Here's a command to obey. But then he gives us some encouragements to obey. He doesn't just say do this, but do this because of this reason. So there's encouragements there. Here's what you want, here's what you have to do. And here's some motivation to help you, um, and reasons why to help you obey. And then he closes out each section with some expectations for the future. Reasons to hang on. Reasons not to give up. Reasons to press on in the faith. Blessings to wait for in present trials. And so we're going to go through both these, Lord willing, both these sections, and look at those those edicts or those commands, those encouragements or motivations, and then the expectations of what we're waiting for in those blessings. So in verse number 5... We find the first, um, the first command, the first part. He says, "Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder; yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility." So there's there's the command. There's uh, there's the word of God telling us that we must do something. We are under grace. We serve the God of all grace in verse number ten, but. He does command us to do things. He does tell us that there are things that we must do. To please the Lord, there are things that he would have us to do. And one of these things is um, to to submit and to be humble. So first he says the younger are to submit to the elder. And so the previous section, the Lord has placed uh, men in the position to feed the flock and to take oversight. To, to watch over, to protect, not being as lords over, or not being lords over God's heritage, but examples to the flock. Then he says um, to the younger to obey the, the elder. So the next one is uh, that, that those who are young in the church submit to those um, who, who are not, and to the elder. And then he says. Well, in fact, not just that, but all of you be subject one to another. Everyone have this humility about them that there was not. There were, that we should all be ready and willing to receive um, correction, or to be um, to be rebuked if need be, or to be in a I have a heart attitude of humility, not um, not being desirous of the preeminence, but to submit ourselves one to another. Not just the younger to the elder. He says, "Yea, all of you, be subject one to another. Be clothed with humility." The uh, Greek word translated "clothed" um, is used most times, for work clothes. So a servant would put on his um, work clothes, his, his, his apron, and he would go and do his service. And so that's, that's the picture that Peter is drawing here for us, that we are to put on our work clothes, put on our servant's clothes in the house of God. We're not to be wearing the um, Garments and robes of a king, even though we're a royal priesthood, as Peter said. We're a royal priesthood. So why? Why do we have to submit? We're an elect nation. We're precious in the uh, in, in God, a holy nation, a peculiar people, a chosen generation. Well, Peter says that is true what the Lord would have us to do is take off those robes, those royal robes, and, and put on these robes of a servant. Clothe ourselves with humility to serve one another, to humble ourselves before one another. See, Peter tells us who we are, the children of God adopted into his family uh, with an eternal inheritance waiting for us. <clears throat> That chosen generation, the royal priesthood. But now, that, that, that's, that's who we are. But now, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Servants, be subject to your masters. Wives, be in subjection to your husbands. Ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you, be subject to one to another. Not oh, be proud but put on the, the robes of the servant. Despite our privileges, let's put on the work clothes. Why? Because our Lord has commanded and because our Lord did likewise. Does that remind you of anything whenever we think of someone taking off the royal garment and putting on the servant's robe? well, our Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself, he entered into this this world, he assumed flesh. The word of God assumed flesh. That, uh, he was truly God and truly man. And he put, was in the form of a servant. And even in his life, he illustrated that in the upper room where he, he took off the garments and he wrapped himself in the towel to wash the disciples' feet. And that was an example for us, he said, that the Lord of glory humbled himself to wash the feet of his disciples. Certainly it shouldn't be too much for us to be subject one to another and be clothed with humility in the house of God. As our Lord and as our Master and as our King humbled himself and put on the the robes of the servant for the love of his people, uh, so too we uh, follow suit and we be humble and submit and serve one another. So that's what we're to do. Then he gives us some encouragement. Why Why should we do this? Well, for God resisteth the proud and he giveth grace to the humble. See, the proud thinks highly of themselves. A proud person thinks very highly of themselves and they want other people to think highly of them too. So a proud person thinks that they're, you know, they're all that it is, and they think everybody else ought to have that same opinion that they're the best there there ever was and what's the praise and adoration and the, well I'm too good to do this and I'm too important to do that so why should we not want to do why should we not want to be that way well God resists the proud God doesn't share the same opinion that the proud man does of himself that he's He's all that, but he scorns the scorner. Peter's quoting the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Proverbs three thirty-four, where it says, "Surely he scorneth the scorners, but giveth grace unto the lowly." So, one reason why we shouldn't be proud is because God resists the proud if a proud person wants to be honored and lifted up and praised, well, this is not the way to go about it. Peter and the other apostles fought amongst themselves. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to sit on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in the kingdom? Who's the best? Who's the greatest? Who's going to have the most authority? Who's going to have the most power? And where did that pride lead them? In the gospel. It led Peter, who said, I'll never deny you. Everybody else will. I never will. It led Peter to deny. It led the others to flee. It led them to doubt. Their pride came before their fall. The Lord taught them and us a lesson in that. So we shouldn't want to be proud if, if, if that's what you're wanting, exaltation. Well, being proud is not the way to go about it. The proud wants exaltation, but the judgment is he doesn't get it. But the humble in heart seeks to serve God and serve others and yet receives what they're not looking for. God doesn't reject the humble. People overlook the humble. The meek inherit very little of this world's good most of the time. If you're going to get ahead in this life, then oftentimes the the way of the meek um, isn't going to get you very far in this world's goods. But the meek shall inherit the earth, Jesus said. God giveth grace to the humble. You receive by being brought very low. You receive exaltation. You get lifted up by going low. In James 4, James says these very same things. In James 4, starting verse number 5. You think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth the envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God... Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And so, in our humility, in the confession of our sins, in looking at ourselves the way that we really are, in light of the Word of God, knowing that without God we're nothing, without God we have nothing, we humble ourselves before His mighty hand. And He gives more grace. That's what you need. So, the sinner needs grace. The humble man recognizes that he is a sinner Humbles himself before God and receives the very thing that he needs. The proud man needs grace. But he wants to be blessed based upon his works and receives the judgment. So that's a motivation to humility. Grace, God's grace. That's motivation to humble ourselves and to serve one another. The glorious grace of God. Well, here's the expectation. Verse 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. So submit to God. We can submit one to another because God told us to. And so, therefore, we submit ourselves unto our God. And we obey our God. And because God says, I want you to serve one another, we can say, yes Lord, yes my master, my king I will serve you by serving others and we humble ourselves before God under his mighty hand not the mighty hand of the government or the mighty hand of of some pope or, or some religious leader but the mighty hand of God knowing that Only God is almighty, and only God is all-powerful, and only God is holy and pure and righteous of himself. And because we have received grace from the mighty hand of God, will we bow down ourselves before the mighty hand of God and not to be crushed or destroyed or to be forgotten? What happens in this world if you humble yourself before a mighty person? Well, sometimes they will crush you or take you captive, or or abuse you, or just pass you aside. But for us to humble ourselves before this mighty God is the way to be lifted up, the way to be exalted, the way to glory. The way to glory and honor is to humble ourselves and to serve others, to be a servant because he will exalt us in due time all those blessings that we have in chapter number 1 the living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to the inheritance incorruptible undefiled and fadeth not away reserved in heaven for us that trial worth more than gold that we'll we'll get at the return of Jesus How do you receive that? Not with the sword, not by conquering the nations, not by taking over the government and and turning this nation into a a Christian nation. That's not the way to glory. The way to glory is to humble yourself before God, to confess your faults, confess your sins, and he will lift us up. So the way up is down. When will he do it? in due time not our preferred time not a quick and easy time but the right time and the best time right on time he will lift us up so it might be decades of trials and service and humility but in due time the perfect time the right time uh, the lord will exalt us so for for this time upon this earth we live in, in trials and sufferings, but but we look to the Lord. We trust God to exalt us because He cares for us. We trust God that humility is the way because He cares for us. We trust God and pray for grace and cast all of our cares upon Him for He cares for us. And so as we endure this hardship and we do what seems um, it, it seems like it's the wrong thing to do. The opposite of what we might uh, intuitively think. To humble ourselves to be exalted, we trust God. We cast our cares upon Him, knowing that He cares for us, and know in that due time, that perfect time, that right on time, He will lift us up. So that is our expectation. That'll help us serve God. So we got the command. We know that it's good for us now, and oh, what a blessing it will be there in the future. So we have the the edict, and then um, our our expectation there um, there at the end, or an encouragement and our expectation. Well, now the second section here, we have another edict. We have another command: be sober, be vigilant. It literally means to be sober like don't get drunk, but also sober-minded. So if you're drunk, your mind's clouded, it's under the influence of something else. you're not thinking right, it says be sober, be sober-minded, be alert, be vigilant, be watchful. Have your wits about you, in other words. Be on guard. There's temptations all over. Be on guard. There's something psychologists call uh, ego depletion. And there's a concept that the willpower of a human being is not infinite. It's limited. And that makes sense if you think about it. But I don't, I don't know that we think about it too much, that we think that we have unlimited willpower, that because we beat a temptation this morning means we're going to beat it uh, this afternoon. And they've done studies in, uh, on this and experiments on this and that. They, they've shown that the more exertion that you, that you endure during the day and the more that your willpower is tested, the more likely it is you'll fall later on. There was one test where they took some college students and they made them fast. And they brought one group of students in And they had some chocolate chip cookies baking. And they gave these students all that they wanted. This one set. They could eat as many as they wanted. Well, the other set come in, and they can smell the chocolate chip cookies. But they were only allowed to eat a plate of radishes. So here they were hungry anyway. So they're physically not up to the task. And then they had to smell that chocolate chip cookie, but then could only eat radishes. Well, they endured that for a little while, and then they had to go do a puzzle, and they had to work on this puzzle, and the trick was, the puzzle was unsolvable. It was a trick, it was a trick puzzle, so you couldn't solve it, and they were supposed to just work on it and finish it. Well, the group that ate the cookies lasted on average for 20 minutes before they gave up. (coughs) They worked on it, worked on it, worked on it, and... But the interesting part about that is the ones that had their radishes, on average, only worked on it for eight minutes. And they when they were doing the, the studies on that, that's what had happened. They had used so much of their power, their willpower, and so forth to resist the temptation of the uh of the of the cookies. They just didn't have the strength to to do that puzzle. They didn't have the determination. They they were wore out. So what does this have to do with, with, with the Bible? Well, I think just knowing ourselves. right? Knowing ourselves is being on guard, being sober, being vigilant, having your wits about you, knowing some things about yourself. Think about the disciples where they were there in the garden of Gethsemane, with with Jesus. And Jesus says, pray. And what did they do? They fell asleep. He said, you need to pray so you won't enter into temptation. And they fell asleep. And he told them, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. If Jesus had asked them to pray with him early in the, you know, on the other end, after a good night's sleep and a big breakfast, and says, we come and pray with me, they'd been fine. But there, after a long day, in the cool of the night, dark outside, praying, they just couldn't keep their eyes open. The flesh was weaker. And, and we, we see that the scripture tells us to pray. Jesus said, pray, lead us not into temptation. So, so what we need to do is say, you know what, it's better not to enter into temptation at all, rather than try to fight it all the time. Be sober. Be vigilant. Be on the lookout. So, what does that mean? Oh, well, that means when you're tired and you're hungry, be on the lookout. Be on. Be on guard against um, the sin of harsh words towards other people. Right? Isn't that the truth? Are you more likely to 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 snap at somebody whenever you're you're hungry and you're tired or whenever you're full and well-rested. well rested they have they have a new word for that don't hangry right well, what's that tell us that tells us our flesh is weak so what does that tell us whenever we know that situation is well, we need to be on guard and not say not say well that's just the way I am no be on guard Because when did the devil attack Jesus? When was his temptation? After 40 days in the wilderness of fasting. When the flesh was weak. So this is just one example by which we can be vigilant. Because if you were going to attack somebody, when would you attack them? I would attack them when they were weakest. I would attack them whenever they were um, more susceptible to being attacked. And defeated. So when you're under a lot of stress, when you're sick, um, when the flesh is weak, when you've got a week coming up that from sunup to sundown, you're going to be busy, busy, busy. And you say, you know what? I'm going to be stretched so thin, this would be the perfect opportunity for Satan to come and, and just lay, lay a hold on me. Be vigilant then. Pray. Be looking about. That's what, that's what Peter is telling us. Have your wits about you. Why? Because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. So that that's a pretty good encouragement, I think, to be sober and to be vigilant. So that's the command. Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because there's a lion out there wanting to Wanting to each of the shreds, or rip you to shreds. Resist him. He's a real active adversary. Resist him. Resist him. And so, when he does come, and I and we can't make him stop, when he does come, then you'll you'll be able to see it. God has given us the intel. He has given us the faith. He has given us the weaponry. We know his stratagem. As the scripture tells us, we know his strategy and his plans, how he operates. We know ourselves, that we are weak, and without the, the grace of God, um, we, are, uh, we would surely fall. So resist. Don't just give in. Don't say, that's the way I am. Resist. Whom you resist steadfast in the faith. Stand fast in this faith. Um, St. Patrick, um, whom St. Patrick's day is named, he says, I rise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me from the snares of the devil, from temptation to vices, from everyone who will wish me ill. Far and near, alone and in multitude, God will protect us. And so that's an encouragement to to fight. And he he goes on and said, the same afflictions are accomplishing your brethren they are in the world. And it's not just you; you're not alone. We're not alone. There's a uh, the, the the kingdom of God is out um, in the in the world. There are brothers and sisters who suffer and go through the same problems and types of trials that you go through, you are not alone. Take encouragement that you've got a band of brothers out there who are fighting just like you're fighting, and, and striving against sin, and rege- uh, resisting against temptation just like you. You might think, well, it seems like I'm the only one that uh, that is... Striving for godliness and striving after holiness. Well, no, you're not. You're not the only one. And I think the Bible has this for us because it might seem like that sometimes. But we're to remind ourselves, no, I'm not the only one. I'm not Elijah. Elijah said he was the only one, but God said, no, you're not the only one. There's there's 7,000 haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And Peter reminds us the same thing. There are others who also are resisting. So take encouragement with that. You are not alone. What's our expectations then for this section? But the God of all grace, who has called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish <laughs> strength, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The God of all grace. Not some grace, not a little grace. But the God of all grace, whom we have our strength and our victory, our refuge and our shield. He's the author of grace. He's the giver of grace. And when we are fighting against temptation, suffering for righteousness sake, uh, outnumbered by the people of the world, the God of all grace is with us. James Smith Um, in his sermon, The Believer's Companion in the Season of Affliction, said, All grace dwells in God and flows freely from it. The aboundings of His grace will produce strong faith, great patience, deep humility, holy contentment, ardent love, joyful hope, a warm zeal, scriptural courage, and spiritual fortitude. It is divine grace which quickened us to feel our lost state, led us to Jesus, gives us a good hope, conquers our corruptions and enables us to act for the Lord's glory. In reference to these things, you may feel miserably deficient. So you may hear all these things and you think, well, I would love to have holy contentment and deep humility and great patience. I'd love to have a joyful hope and a warm zeal and and courage and fortitude. Well, you cannot produce them, he said, but God and make his grace abound in you, he can give you a sufficiency of grace to support you in every trial, strengthen you in every burden, qualify you for every duty, and to fill you with joy and peace and believing that you may, may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the God of all grace. And until he changes his nature and forfeits his word or refuses to give, you have no ground of despondency. So until the God of all grace Stops being that God of all grace. We have no grounds to to despair, and every reason to hope, every reason to to continue on, every reason to to wake up and praise and glorify our God. Every reason to trust Him because He is the God of all grace. Oh, but I've committed great sins. Well, He's the God of all grace. I don't live up to those expectations that Peter has called us to with these commands. He is the God of all grace. Come to him and he will help us. He will strengthen us. He will perfect us. He will establish us. We serve a victorious Christ. The Christ who is, He has called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. We serve the victorious Christ and, and, and the Lord tells us after you have suffered a while, not forever if you're without christ you're going to suffer forever this this world's the best that you get then you die and then you suffer some more but for the for god's people who are in christ called into his eternal glory will suffer for a while and even in that suffering It's doing a work in us. Suffering is doing a work. Perfect It's translated in other places, mended. Like when the disciples mended their nets, they completed it. There it There was a hole in the net. It was missing. And they perfected it or they completed it. They mended it. They made it whole. They put it back together. To establish is to make us stand up on our feet. To set us there, establish to strengthen us, to give us strength and, and to settle us, to, to make us stable. That's the work of God in you. And that's what suffering does in your life. It mends you. It, it, God uses it to make you whole, to, to make you more like Christ and to strengthen you, to establish you, to settle you in, in, in the faith. Matthew Poole said, "Perfect that, or to perfect that which is begun, to establish that which is right, to strengthen that which is weak, and to settle that which is already built. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Praise the Lord for what he has done for us. Well, Peter signs off this letter and he sends it by Sylvanus, a faithful brother he was a preacher of jesus christ second corinthians 1 19 and first thessalonians tells us that he preached with paul and timothy so he preached with paul and timothy and peter to the same man so he was a faithful preacher faithful to the church faithful to peter and now he's going to deliver these letters well what, what was the point of this he says well I, um I've written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God where we stand. So I'm sending this letter by my faithful brother. Peter did his part. This faithful brother is going to do his part. And what was the point? To exhort and to testify. To encourage, to incite to good deeds and to testify the truth. So the edict, and then the encouragement. So that, that's what he said this whole letter was about. To tell you what to do, why to do it now, and, and an encouragement to look for in the future. He told us to be holy, as God is holy, to gird up the loins of our mind, to love one another, to desire the sincere milk, to abstain from fleshly lust. To submit to the ordinances of man and to be subject to our masters and, and to have one mind, having compassion, to be piteous, to be courteous, to sanctify the Lord in our hearts, to be sober, to watch under prayer, to be vigilant, to have fervent charity. All these things He has told us to do, exhorted us into godliness, but also testifying, bearing witness. Of the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ and salvation by God's sovereign grace. He testified of election. He testified that Christ suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust. He testified that we will be um, uh, we are saved and cleansed by the, the blood of Christ, that we are born again um, by the grace of God, by the incorruptible seed of the word of God, that our sins were born in his own body on the tree that we are by his stripes we were healed that we have been returned to the great shepherd of our souls he tells us about the future he tells us about our inheritance he tells us about our uh, the resurrection he tells us that these things in this life are temporary and are not to be compared with the joys that are to come he testified at the true grace of god Because of the true grace of God, therefore, this is how you ought to live. And because of the true grace of God, this is what you have waiting for you. Not because of what we do, because He's what he's done for us. And so you have first the grace and then the gratitude. The grace for in Christ Jesus our Lord that we receive by faith everlasting life. And then the gratitude, because of that, this is what I want you to do. So he exhorted us, and he testified the true grace of God, that grace wherein we stand. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus, he says. A peace from God, a peace that is given in Christ. This peace is what Peter leaves us with. He says, salute one another. The church of that Babylon elected together with you. Marcus says, hello. You know, all these, all these, greet one another with the holy kiss of charity. Love one another. Greet one another. He says, peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that something? All the things he talked about, suffering, persecution, trials, the devil's... Tr- after you, like a roaring lion, you got wicked men in the government. Um, after you, you got wicked masters persecuting you. You got the malice and the guile and the hypocrisies in the world, false teachers, trials, troubles, tribulations of all sorts. And what do he end up with? Peace. This is a peace that is from God in Christ Jesus, and it's a peace that. The world can't give you. And the the world gives you tribulation. God gives you peace. It's a peace that cancels fear. It's a peace that settles a troubled heart. It's a peace that will bring rejoicing in, in troublesome times. It's a peace that brings hope. It's a peace with God in Christ. It's peace with all that are in Christ Jesus. It's a gift of God. It's from the God of all grace. It's what our God who loves us wants us to have. It's what our Father desires in the hearts of his children for us to be at peace. It's, what, it's the blessing of humility. It's the blessing of being in Christ. Peace in a troubled world. People can talk all they want um, this week about peace and goodwill and, and, and all, all of that. I tell you, the only people who are going to have peace are those who are in Christ Jesus, who come to him by faith. And there's a peace that the world can't give you. There's a peace that things in this life can't provide you. And that, that's what this letter is about. To the scattered strangers, the pilgrims of this world, walking through a, a, a land that, a foreign land run by the people of the world and the system of the world, you and I can have peace. We can have a holy joy enduring the trials, obeying God for the blessings that he gives us now and looking towards those expectations to come uh, where we'll receive all the blessings God has promised us in Christ Jesus.